Acts 3, verses 1 to 10 from the NRSV. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried in. People would lay him at the gate daily in the temple called the Beautiful Gate so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked at him intently, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good here, isn't it? I love that everyone gets a clap. That's great. Yeah, well, thanks for, um, thanks for having me. Thanks for your hospitality. It's been great to, um, to be here and be in relationship with you and fellowship with you. And I'm, I, I am learning lots, and I'm expecting that I'm going to learn more and receive more. And today I have uh, the unenviable task of following on from uh, Bishop Ruth, who preached at last week's um, confirmation service. That was just an amazing time, wasn't it? What a great service uh, that was. Uh, 21 people were confirmed. 21 people from this church um, stood in front of the bishop and their church family and made a declaration of what they believe and what that means for their future. And Bishop Ruth talked to us about the difference that our faith should make to the way we think and speak and act. And so this made me um, think and reflect over the week on my own journey of faith and, and um, uh, you know, what a journey it's been and, and also the things I've been experiencing since I've been here um, during the placement, uh, the healing centre, uh, revival prayer and warrior prayer, um, fasting, uh, confirmations, these services. And they're all examples of what happens when we expect God to turn up with power and authority. Now, I've got a friend who, um, when he was a teenager, he really liked this girl. He wanted her to be his girlfriend, and so he thought, right, I'll ask her out on a, a date. And um, she agreed, but she said, look, you know, why don't you come with me to um, a music group that I go to? He was a guitarist. He, he's a very talented guitarist, and so he turned up... Um, ready to impress her with his range of musical abilities. And he found out to his horror that it was a Christian <laughs> worship group. Uh, and uh, he liked this girl so much, he thought that, you know, if he stuck around and got involved, um, she'd be impressed and would, and would fall for him. And so he decided to go along with it. But when he started to play a song of praise to a God he did not believe in, the Holy Spirit moved in him the very first, for the very first time. He turned up um, looking for what he thought he wanted, and he got far more than he expected. He got Jesus. And, and there's a happy ending. She did fall for him, and um, I think they've been married well over, well over 25 years, I think, isn't it? They've been married. They've got grown-up children, uh, and he's still in the worship band. <laughs> 
And so what's this got to do uh, with the reading from Acts? Well, we see this lame beggar carried to his usual spot, um, hoping people, that are gonna get, people are going to give him money. And when he sees Peter and John, he looks at them expectantly. He's looking for what he thought he wanted. But because Jesus is involved, he gets far more than he expected. And I'm reflecting on this and thinking, you know, this has happened to me in my Christian life. I certainly never expected to join the clergy. I mean, who would? Um, <laughs> my early life, actually, was completely different. Uh, a few years after I became a teacher, um, I was working at a boarding school, and my older sister bumped into uh, one of my old school friends. I'd fallen out of touch. And they greeted each other and um, asked each other how things were going. And she said, have you heard about Neil? And my friend replied, no, is he in prison? <laughs> and uh, and um, I guess that wasn't completely misplaced. Uh, you know, I, I, grew up in a, I grew up in a broken home uh, with many challenging and disturbing aspects to it. And yet it was also a Christian home. And that's a really odd paradox, seeing the, the, the brokenness of mankind and also uh, the faith and glory of Jesus. Um, and I definitely knew uh, Jesus as a, as a childhood friend. Um, I know that I talked to him lots whenever I was uh, uh, frightened or upset, um, but I, I don't think I had anyone close to me that was modelling Christian behaviour. And looking back, um, if I'm honest, I think most of my childhood, I was just trying to survive. Um, and we moved from uh, East London to the, the culturalist wastelands of Essex housing estates, um, and uh, my, in my early life, my mum was a cleaner, and my dad was uh, a local minister, uh, a youth leader, and an alcoholic. And um, it's a good combination, isn't it? Uh, and we church hopped a lot, and so uh, I've got a random experiences of so many different types of church. And then when I was 11, I found something that rooted me and gave me identity, and it was, it was rugby, uh, playing rugby. I think it's the only reason I went to school. Um, it's certainly the only reason I stayed on for sixth form. Um, thankfully, my brain woke up then and I started to fall in love with academia. And when I joined a rugby club, I encountered a group of people who um, uh, you know, loved me and met me and accepted me for who I was. And then when I was 16, I went to uh, a Nicky Cruz rally in um, a dreadful place called Harlow in Essex. Have you ever been there? It's always raining in Harlow. Um, and we went to this big basketball arena with my friends. I think we, I think we only went because we'd read uh, Run Baby Run and the Cross and the Switchblade and those sorts of, those sorts of things. Um, and I responded to the, to the altar call, went up the front on my knees. Nicky Cruz himself uh, blessed me and I gave my life to Jesus. Um, but I wasn't ready to surrender my life completely. And a couple of weeks later, um, it was the day before preseason rugby started, um, I tore the cruciate ligaments in my knee. And I was told it would take uh, about six months before uh, to recover, and it was probably going to be a year before I was playing rugby again. And my dad um, made me go to a vineyard church he was going to at the time. Um, and I went along really reluctantly. I hadn't been to church with my dad for a while. And um, the elders laid hands on me and prayed for me. And I was convinced that nothing was going to happen. And um, I wasn't really thrilled about a group of men touching my leg either. Uh, that's weird, isn't it? Um, and I'm sure you can guess what happened. My knee was healed instantly. 
And my, res- my response, well, I remember I got up and thanked them politely. Um, I thanked my dad. Um, I gave them my crutches, and I was like, thanks, guys, that's really cool. Um, and then I went out and uh, met my friends down the pub, and I was at rugby training the next day, pre-season uh, rugby. Um, my rugby career took off, but it was seven years before I walked into a church again. I certainly got more than I expected, uh, you know, complete... Uh, healing from a potentially uh, long-term and debilitating injury. But I didn't respond like the man in the Acts passage. I didn't praise God. And then when I was 22, I, um, I was at university. I was happily uh, minding my own business, uh, playing rugby, pursuing the world's pleasures, and I fell in love. Um, I actually fell in love at first sight with, um, with Kirsty. Um, and... I was really annoyed about this because uh, <laughs> falling in love, uh, love and monogamy, let's say, weren't compatible with the lifestyle that I wanted to live. Um, I was having lots of fun ignoring God, hiding the emptiness inside of me, um, drinking all I wanted to drink, playing rugby nonstop, and doing whatever I felt like doing. Um, I'd fully fallen into the ways of this world and embraced this world. Um, and thankfully, God had other plans. Um, some months later, uh, we found out that uh, Kirsty was unexpectedly um, pregnant, and we made a decision to give it a go. I'm a, I'm a real romantic, aren't I? Uh, let's give it a go. Um, <laughs> and uh, having our son, uh, Ben, led us to go to uh, this local church toddler group. Um, and from there, we started going to church, and then... Uh, a couple of years later, um, through a bit of deception, I think, uh, some friends uh, managed to get me to go to uh, Faith Camp, the uh, Kingdom Faith Annual Festival that used to happen. And I heard this uh, South African preacher, Jimmy Crompton, um, and he was just awesome. He was telling stories about when his dad used to run with Smith Wigglesworth and he was preaching fire and brimstone and the Holy Spirit was moving and people were falling over and everyone was going wild. And I was standing there feeling the call, but deeply cynical and suspicious. And um, at the end of this service, he, he did the altar call, and uh, I responded to it to go to the front. But this was, this was really bad timing because um, I should have left the service about half an hour early um, because I was giving my sister away at her wedding. Um, <laughs> and I couldn't, leave, I couldn't leave the cow shed we were in, in on the agricultural showground in Peterborough. Um, and Kirsty remembers waiting um, impatiently for me back at my tent, wondering what on earth has happened to me. And then she sees me wobbling back onto the unit, um, being supported by one of the older ladies who, who definitely wasn't physically able to carry me or help me. And I really was like Bambi. I'd, I'd received the Holy Spirit. Um, I'd received full baptism in the Spirit. And I think it was ongoing. And rather than be sensible and lie down like lots of people do, I was trying to make my way uh, to, um, to my sister's wedding. I did make it there, actually. Um, God, God made that all work, too. And, of course, this did lead to a huge change in everything. Uh, Kirsty and I got married. Um, I did my teaching qualification. I got a job in this wonderfully ancient boarding school. And I found that it was here that God used my early life experiences and gave me the privilege of doing pastoral work with young people who were in real need of emotional and spiritual um, support. Um, I spent most of my time uh, teaching theology and 
coaching rugby, but I also ran the Christian Union and uh, took the Soul Survivor summer camps, ran Youth Alpha. And I'll be honest, most of the time I wasn't really sure what I was doing. Um, I was a young Christian and I was full of enthusiasm and I was expectant of what God was doing. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I knew that God would do stuff. And so, and so that was that. And it's funny to think back uh, that I really did get more than I expected when I went for, forward for, for prayer at faith camp on my sister's wedding day. It wasn't just a, a, healingness of the brokenness in, a healing of the brokenness inside of me. Um, and, you know, you get that overwhelming knowledge um, of the full love of Jesus, um, the full forgiveness that sort of washes over you. But actually, I got a chance to um, bless others by passing what I'd received on. So it wasn't just a changed heart, but a changed life. And that was, you know, just the beginning. Uh, one day, many years later, I was uh, walking and praying. I used to go walking early in the morning around the school hockey fields, um, praying in tongues so no, no one could hear me. I was way out on the fields uh, with my dog. And um, I was asking God what was in store for me in 10 years' time. I'm a, I'm a real forward planner, as you might guess by that statement. And I was like, God, I'm, I love where I'm at. I love this, this teaching vocation, this ministry you've brought me into. This is great, but where am I going to be in 10 years' time? And um, the response was, um, I'd like to be a priest. And uh, I, I was surprised too. Um, and, um, and it was a real shock. And it took me uh, a couple of weeks to build up the courage to tell Kirsty. And um, I went to her and said, um, I've been out praying and I, and I think God's calling me to be a priest. And she was horrified. She said, no way. Um, I'm not going to be a vicar's wife. Uh, can you go back and ask him for something different? <laughs> Uh, it was an awkward conversation the next day. God, I tried it. And she, you know, Kirsty's not, is there anything else? Um, anyway, uh, thankfully, that uh, was 10 years warning, wasn't it? And he worked a lot in both of us formationally over that time. And 10 years later, I did. I walked into uh, to Ridley Hall in Cambridge to take my uh, master's in theology and begin my formational training. And now I'm in the final year of my curacy. And I think if you had told me back then uh, that that was God's plan for me, I don't think I'd have believed you, but uh, I, I guess I should have expected something. Because when you give your life completely to Jesus, you should expect total transformation. And this passage from Acts, it's a powerful passage. It reflects uh, this sort of thing. It starts with uh, Peter and John heading to um, a Jewish temple to pray. And... Uh, I'm tempted to think this is a bit of a strange thing for them to do because they've just spent you know, three years with Jesus, really intensive time. They've received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Um, so why is that really necessary? But they knew that worshipping God with other believers was an essential part of their relationship with him. And last week at the confirmation service, the candidates affirmed their faith in Jesus, but their place within the church was also affirmed. I don't know if you remember the words um, that were used. Um, some of them were, people of God, will you welcome these candidates and uphold them in their life in Christ? And we all had to say, with the help of God, we will. And uh, Bishop Reith made us uh, say it twice, I think you might remember, because she wanted to emphasize what that really meant. That church is a place where Christians can dwell with each other and God as kingdom family. 
but it's also the springboard for everything else that goes on outside the church. Here we're blessed, equipped, loved. And we see this with Peter and John. They were anchored and rooted in their time in the temple, but they were not limited by its boundaries because God's on the move. He's not confined within, in, within an institution. He moves out amongst those who need to hear the good news message of truth, abundance, and salvation. People need to be healed. They need health. They need hope. And so Peter and John are on their way to, um, to, to praise God, to give thanks. They're probably going to meet some friends in the temple as well. But they're full of the Holy Spirit, and so they're open to the work of God happening everywhere. And as they walk, they see this lame man at the beautiful gate. And everyone's going to recognize this man. He's carried their daily to beg, and either you ignore him or you give him money. But Peter and John respond unexpectedly. And I think their actions are a really good guide for the rest of us to following where the Holy Spirit um, is working, allowing the Holy Spirit to work through us, um, work through our gifts, to nudge us, to guide us, to speak to us. And I think in particular, two uh, very interesting things happen. So firstly, in in verse 4, Luke emphasizes that having been asked for money from the beggar, Peter and John look straight at him. In other translations, it says, Peter with John looked hard at him, or Peter looked intently at him, as did John. What were they looking intently for? A sincere spirit ready to receive more than they'd asked for? A heart full of pain, uh, yearning to be touched by God's healing love? And I think there's something profoundly deep in that face-to-face contact. And not only did Peter and John stare hard at him, but they told him to stare hard at them too. Look at us, they said. And I think that this is where missional Holy Spirit encounter really begins. When we really look at someone, we're open to the prompting of the Holy Spirit like Peter and John were. And then God speaks to us and works through us to meet that that person's needs. And like Peter and John, we need to look intently at the world uh, around us in whatever context we've been placed I mean, you know your own context. And it might be um, while you're walking to the shops, traveling on public transport, um, having a lovely walk uh, at Chanctonbury Ring um, or along the seafront on a nice day. It might be while you're at work or at school or at college or at the gym or the club or out in the evening with your friends. I mean, how can the Holy Spirit nudge us if the only place we stare intently at is the floor or, or our screens? And if we ask people to look back at us, what would they see? And obviously I'm not saying that we should start standing and just staring at people um, until they stare back at you. That's not uh, going to encourage positive engagement. It's more likely to start a fight, I think, than uh, than so. So don't do that. Uh, What I mean is Peter and John focus on and interact with the beggar in a very human and relational way. When I was a teacher, I used to pray on the way to work every day, and I'd pray for God to give me the opportunities to arise where I could share the gospel. Um, And most of the time, I'd then get on with the day, completely forgetting that I'd made that request in the morning. And um, it's funny how often that whilst I was getting on with my work, the Holy Spirit would nudge me and say, 
look, look over there. And I'd realise suddenly that the conversation I might be having with a student or, for example, with a colleague, um, often someone I didn't know very well, and they'd suddenly be telling me something, uh, something really personal. My, my, my partner's cheating, I've just been diagnosed with. Um, and for a minute, I think, why are you telling me this? And then I think, oh, yeah, I've, <laughs> I prayed this morning, didn't I, that opportunities would happen um, and encounters would happen. And I'd realized that it was the opportunity to engage with someone transformationally. These people, like the beggar, um, reaching out for money to help him, were reaching out with what troubled them most. And when I stared intently back at them, I realized, yeah, they, they need help with their problem. But really, they need something far greater than they expected. They need Jesus. And I think this is the second interesting response from the apostles. They don't ignore the beggar, but they don't give him money either, do they? They see through his superficial request to what he truly needs. And we have to ask God how we can do the same. I mean, it's easy to walk away from people um, in need because we don't stop and notice or we're too busy or because we can't even begin to solve their problems. But what this passage shows us is that not having human answers to the beggar's problems does not stop Peter and John from offering him what they do have. As a result of their human compassion to this deep suffering that they encounter, prompted by the Holy Spirit, Peter says to the beggar, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, stand up and walk. In the name of Jesus. Peter says, in the name of Jesus. And it's an obvious thing to say, isn't it? But let's think about what it actually means. Luke's telling us in this narrative that when we mention Jesus' name, things happen. And it's as true today as it was then. It can't be emphasized too much that there is real power in the name of Christ. There's nothing like it in all the world. Tom Wright, the theologian, describes it like this. The name of Jesus makes people grow, become whole people, rinsed out and renewed, standing on their own feet, literally as this lame man now was, morally, spiritually, and personally. And it's easy to get used to hearing these sorts of um, Bible passages, so I'll reiterate it. The name of Jesus heals people. The name of Jesus has the power to offer new life, unconditional love, and eternal hope. You see, in, a, in our cynical, uh, fallen, broken world, people ask for more money or healing from mental or physical illness or more community, and rightly so. But no one expects new life, unconditional love, and eternal hope. And so I wonder, as we think about this this morning, where is the Holy Spirit nudging you to stare intently? Who could you offer Jesus to? What do you expect from your life with God? And this passage shows us that we need to be rooted in our relationship with God Spending time together in prayer and praise, led by the Holy Spirit as we just have been. Ready to call on the powerful name of Jesus and expecting the miraculous. And then we will see people and communities transformed. 
And um, I'm sure, I hope, there are many of you here this morning um, that are like Peter and John in this passage, uh, ready to use um, the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But there might be some of you here um, this morning who equally might be like the, the beggar holding out your hand in desperation, in need. And I guess if either of these uh, two examples are you, are you ready to receive more than you are expecting? I hope so. Because Jesus knows that whether we're lame or brokenhearted or suffering depression or whatever our need is, that we don't just need someone who can grant our requests. We need much more than that. What we need is Jesus himself. Jesus wants to take... Um, what Jesus wants to give life by taking all that's wrong in ours and replacing it with his love. In the words of uh, the author Francis Spufford, let me take that from you, Jesus is saying. Give that to me instead. Let me carry it. Let me be to blame instead. I'm big enough. I'm, I'm wide enough. I'm not what you were told. I'm not your distant judge um, or your distant king. I'm the father who longs for every last one of his children. I am the friend who will never leave you. I'm the light behind the darkness. I'm the shining that your shame cannot extinguish. I'm change and hope. I'm the refining fire. I'm the door when you thought there was only a wall. I am what comes after deserving. I am gift without cost. I am, I am, I am. Before the foundations of the world, I am.